Welcome to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Klarna. Klarna was created 16 years ago with a simple idea to disrupt the old ways of banking by charging retailers instead of customers. Though we're 16, we like to think we're just getting started. I think the Scots will come to a good conclusion, said the great Scottish comedian Billy Connolly, as he announced he would not be voting in the independence referendum of 2014. And while this may have been a wise exercise in fence-sitting from one of Scotland's more unifying figures, it's also proved, with the benefit of hindsight, to be a somewhat forlorn hope. We can now see the 2014 referendum offered little in the way of any sort of conclusion with the independence movement defeated at the polls, but entrenching its position firmly at the centre of Scottish political life. And for all its opponents' efforts to put the genie back into the bottle, the question of Scottish independence has dominated the discourse north of the border for the six and a half years since that vote. It's telling that, for so many of us down here in Westminster, every twist and turn of this extraordinary story has seemed to come as a bit of a shock. In truth, the complex dynamics and powerful historical forces driving Scottish politics have never been well understood in London, a unique short-sightedness which, some might say, dates back a thousand years. Comically, you can actually pinpoint the exact moment that Westminster finally noticed this incredible upsurge in nationalist sentiment. It was a Sunday morning in early September 2014. The summer was lingering late that year, and I was away for the weekend in Suffolk innocently buying an ice cream and a copy of the Sunday Times to enjoy on the prom at Southwold. I remember picking up the paper and immediately seeing an enormous front-page headline printed in huge single-deck type. Always a bad sign if you're a lobby journalist hoping for a quiet life. Yes Vote leads in Scott's poll, the paper screamed, and at a stroke our cosy Westminster bubble had been popped for good. A shock new poll gives Scotland's independence campaign a narrow lead. Yes, Scotland campaign has passed another major mile marker in its efforts to establish an independent Scotland. We are taking nothing for granted in this campaign. The pro-independence campaign was in front for the first time and with less than a fortnight to go until polling day. The editor I worked for at the time was quickly on the phone. I was to go to Scotland immediately, check into a hotel, file a story, find out what the hell was going on. Half the Westminster lobby seemed to be on the train up there with me. I'm not sure any of us knew the first thing about Scottish politics. This was, of course, the sort of blinkered, belated London media reaction of which we're so often accused. And the reaction from Westminster politicians was little better. PMQs were suddenly cancelled at the 11th hour, as a previously complacent David Cameron, Ed Miliband and Nick Clegg all hot-footed it up to Scotland. What greeted us there was a nation electrified, convulsed in political debate. It sounds like a cliché, but literally everyone was talking about the independence question, everywhere you went. There really were debates and arguments happening in the streets and in the pubs all around you. I distinctly remember discussing the currency issue during a haircut. I mean, look, I was there for weeks. And the price of oil with a very animated cab driver. There were banners and flags and balloons everywhere. The rallies were raucous at best, unpleasant at worst. As a naive young journalist from England, it just seemed really exciting. But for the people of Scotland, this was existential. And your take on it all depended entirely upon your political point of view. Seriously, I have never seen such animation 
in a country in my life. This is the newspaper columnist, Leslie Riddick, who hosts her own pro-independence podcast. Everywhere had little yes groups setting up. They wanted speakers, they wanted meetings. I mean, the amount of creativity unleashed was really unbelievable. It was beyond the parameters of politics as normal. That is adrenaline. And also that attracts young people. I mean, power is sexy. And there was power in Scotland for that period. So if that isn't exciting to anybody living in this country, you need your head examined. That was a very divisive, very aggressive campaign, quite disturbing on the streets. This, on the other hand, is the former Labour First Minister of Scotland, Jack McConnell. I met people who were you know, frightened at times, described by some people now as a kind of joyous occasion. It was only joyous for those who were involved in the battles on both sides. It wasn't joyous for the ordinary punters who were having to put up with it. And here's the Daily Record's veteran Westminster editor, Torquil Crichton. As far as other parts of Scotland was, was a nightmare because there was a split personality. People were being asked to decide, what are you? Are you Scottish or are you British? It was a divisive, you know, tearing apart of, of Scotland's psychology as much as its politics. Hopefully, we've all been paying closer attention since the earthquake of 2014. But how did we get here? How did the once fringe pursuit of Scottish independence become arguably the majority view of the Scottish public? How has a Scottish National Party, once dismissed as a bunch of cranks, put itself on course for a fourth successive victory at next week's Holyrood elections? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're taking a look at the extraordinary journey of the Scottish independence movement from 1914 to 2014, and asking how on earth it got to where it is today. The first thing to know about the Scottish independence movement is that it barely existed before the First World War. In the two centuries which followed the Acts of Union in 1707, the wisdom of a partnership with England was rarely questioned in a serious way, with the British Empire wealthy and supremely dominant on the world stage, and with Scotland playing a central role in its fortunes. The second thing to know is that even after the first pro-independence groups were founded in the aftermath of the war, they would attract precious little support for decades to come. For most of the history of the Scottish National Party, it was quite an unpopular party. This is Dr Ben Jackson, Associate Professor of Modern History at Oxford University, who published a book last year on the history of nationalist political thought in Scotland. In the first decades of its existence, through the 30s and 40s and 50s, it was really a very small group of people who were quite mixed ideologically and philosophically, and there were lots of differences and arguments within the party about the stance that it should take on all sorts of political issues. And they were really against big states, big bureaucratic states. And so it was a kind of anti-bureaucratic, almost libertarian movement in some ways in those early days. But it has to be said, it did not yield many benefits electorally for the party because they didn't actually start winning many votes until the the 60s and 70s, by which point they had sort of staked out a position for themselves as a sort of roughly centre-left, but not very radically left, party. It's indicative of the SNP's early failings that the first big success of the Scottish independence movement was achieved not by politicians, but by a small gang of students on an improbable festive outing. On Christmas morning in 1950, four young independent supporters from Glasgow University drove to London on a covert mission. Their outlandish goal was to retrieve the legendary Stone of Destiny, a centuries-old relic of huge importance to Scotland. 
This 400-pound slab of sandstone had been the ancient coronation seat of Scottish kings until it was brutally seized from the Perthshire village of Schoon by King Edward I in 1296. Edward took his spoils back to London, where the stone lay untroubled for the next 650 years, until this unlikely gang of student burglars turned up, jemmied open a side door at Westminster Abbey, dodged a security guard and bundled the huge rock out of the building. Four months later, with the stone still missing, came their piece de resistance. The relic suddenly reappeared on the altar at Abroth Abbey, draped in a saltire. The PR coup for the nationalist cause was immense. When I lifted the stone in Westminster Abbey, one of the students, Ian Hamilton, told the media, I felt Scotland's soul was in my hands. Alex Salmond himself would have been proud. For the SNP, however, more tangible success would have to wait another 17 years and the Hamilton by-election of 1967. Winifred Margaret Ewing, Scottish Nationalist. Previously, the Nationalists had only ever won a single parliamentary seat in a by-election in April 1945, which they promptly lost again three months later at the subsequent general election. But Hamilton was different, with 38-year-old lawyer and activist Winnie Ewing overturning a huge Labour majority and causing something of a political earthquake as she did so. I have to say also thanks to Hamilton for making history for Scotland and get an independent voice in Westminster. Thank you. Winnie Ewing's stunning victory triggered the first real surge of support for the SNP. Arriving in London on board a special SNP-branded train packed with hundreds of jubilant supporters, she told the waiting press pack, Stop the world. Scotland wants to get on. It was a slogan which would adorn nationalist posters and T-shirts for the next 50 years and beyond. The Hamilton by-election in 1967 and then the years after that, leading up to the two general elections in 1974, were important in the history of Scottish nationalism because that was the electoral breakthrough. The historian Ben Jackson. That was the point at which the party started seriously competing for votes with the other parties and they started winning parliamentary seats for the first time. It put them on the map and put them in place as a place that the electorate could go if they were dissatisfied with the options being offered from the UK political parties. Ewing lost her seat in the 1970 general election, but was returned again in 1974, alongside six of her colleagues. And in the second election of that year, the SNP punched even higher, returning a record 11 MPs to Westminster. So why the sudden shift? There's several things happening that come together to create quite a benign electoral opportunity structure for the Scottish National Party. I mean, one thing is just the underlying economic changes that are starting to take effect at this time in Scotland and also around the rest of the United Kingdom. The industrialisation is starting to happen. There's a sense of kind of economic change and economic turbulence in the background. And meanwhile, you have a rotation of governments in the, the 60s and 70s between Labour and the Conservative, both of whom, you know, seem to be unsatisfactory in the view of a lot of voters, or at least not delivering on the promises that they'd made to the electorate. So that creates an appetite to vote for another party. And in England, you get a lot of people voting for the Liberal Party at this time. And in a similar way, people in Scotland turned to the Scottish National Party. Added to this, of course, was the discovery of North Sea oil, a transformative moment for the Scottish economy and a big boost to those making the case for an independent Scotland. The SNP grabbed the opportunity with both hands. For the first time in its history, the party seemed a genuine force to be reckoned with in Scotland, 
and even briefly held the balance of power in Westminster in the hung parliament of the late 1970s. As so often in politics, success breeds success. A new generation of young Scots suddenly saw the nationalist cause as a viable option for their own political ambitions. Here's Mike Russell, a cabinet minister in Nicola Sturgeon's government and an SNP member of the Scottish Parliament since its inception. I didn't come from a family that was interested in nationalist politics. My father was a curmudgeonly Labour supporter. My mother came from a long line of what you would call old-fashioned liberals. So nationalist politics wasn't for me and indeed wasn't for me at university. I was a member of the University Labour Club under one Gordon Brown, who was the president of it at that stage. And it was only at the, in 1974, February 1974 election, I voted SNP and have joined the party shortly thereafter. There wasn't a huge amount of uh, support for Scottish independence at that time. What attracted you? you as a young man to leave Labour and get into SNP politics? For me, it was very simple. I wanted to see a particular type of Scotland, a more radical Scotland, and I didn't believe that that could be delivered at Westminster by any government, let alone a Labour government. I wasn't unsympathetic to the election of a Labour government. It was better than a Tory government, but it didn't seem to me that it was going to be transformational in Scottish terms. Even a young Jack McConnell, who'd go on to lead the Scottish Labour Party between 2001 and 2007, was impressed. There was definitely a groundswell of support, which was partly based on the state of the UK at that time, when we'd had this minor strikes and the three-day week and the UK didn't look like a happy place. It was also, though, based on a growing sense of cultural confidence and identity. So I remember the 74 election, and in the aftermath of the 74 election, in fact, for about a year in my teens, I actually had an SNP membership card. No, really? Absolutely. And my generation were kind of caught up in this. What was the attraction for you? Was it a romantic attraction, would you say, looking back? Well, the SNP at that time were anti-EU. You know, and the EU looked a bit like a kind of establishment thing if you were young and, you know, looking for change. The UK economy was in a mess. And they were making this point about oil. They also looked young and fresh. Their MPs looked like the future uh, rather than the past. But I was quickly disillusioned by the people that I met in the party <laughs> who were very different from, from that more positive image. And I wasn't interested in all the anti-Englishness and so on that was very much at the core of them as a party then. And it all changed with the devolution referendum of 79, which I was heavily involved in. And the combination of the disappointment at losing, plus the election of the Thatcher government, returned politics in Scotland, to some extent, back to the old battle. And... Uh, most of my generation got involved in that battle, but on the side of trying to remove the Tories and bring in the Labour government. The devolution referendum of 1979 had looked initially like a big win for the SNP, with the party having used its newfound clout in Westminster to secure a vote on creating a devolved assembly. This, they hoped, would be the first step towards an independent Scotland. But what might have been a seminal moment for Scottish nationalism proved instead to be a damp squib. The 1979 campaign just never really caught fire. A small majority of Scots did vote in favour of creating a Scottish Assembly, but turnout was not high enough to meet the threshold stipulated by the Labour government in Westminster. The devolution project stalled for a generation. Maybe it was a function of my own age, but it was disappointing. The pro-nationalist campaigner, Leslie Riddick. Nobody seemed very pleased by anything, even the result before... That hiccup was put into the system that essentially meant that a yes vote just wasn't yes enough to progress with. It just seemed downbeat and kind of technocratic. In anger at the decision not to proceed with devolution, 
the SNP immediately pulled the plug on Jim Callaghan's minority Labour government, triggering the 1979 general election and so securing the passage to power of Margaret Thatcher. The Scottish electorate was not impressed. The party lost all but two of its MPs and collapsed into infighting. In some ways, the devolution referendum was a bit of a disaster for, for Scottish nationalists. The historian Ben Jackson. So in some ways, it was a really demoralising event because all of this sort of political excitement had built up through the mid and late 70s. And there was a sort of sense that Scottish nationalism was a rising wave. And yet in 1979 and then afterwards in the early 80s, the wave sort of broke and dissipated a bit and the SNP's support didn't keep rising. And so in a way, the 79 referendum kind of put the SNP back in their box a little bit for a while, for a number of years until they were able to, to break out of it. That breakout, when it finally came, would be led by a young Royal Bank of Scotland economist who, in the early 1980s, had been thrown out of the SNP for forming an internal faction. His name, of course, was Alex Salmond. And in part two of the podcast, we'll hear both from him and his predecessor as First Minister, Jack McConnell, on the biggest question of all, how and why support for independence has soared to record levels over the past 20 years. Stay with us. This is an advert from Klarna. Because this message is from Klarna, you might expect me to be sitting on a fluffy pink cloud stroking a unicorn. And whilst that sounds fun, today it's all about the facts. Klarna is donating 1% of its latest funding round towards the planet's health, and we're adding a CO2 tracker to the Klarna app to help over 15 million UK customers make more informed decisions when they shop. For more info, visit giveone.com. Now, where's that pink cloud? Please shop responsibly. 18 plus UK residents only. TNCs apply. Credit provided by Klarna Bank AB. See website for details. The 1980s were not a jolly time to be a Scottish nationalist. The Prime Ministerial Rover, bearing now Mrs Thatcher as Prime Minister. Thank you very much. Her Majesty, the Queen, has asked me to form a new administration and I have accepted. We really are threatened now by attacks. It looms, it's imminent. The Labour Party may have been a zillion miles away from actually forming the British government, but it was doing a pretty decent job in Scotland of framing itself as the best outlet for opposition to Margaret Thatcher's deeply unpopular Conservative government. And Labour politicians were happy to do so in increasingly nationalist terms, stealing the SNP's thunder at every turn. But while the strategy delivered short-term gains for the party, some think it laid the groundwork for the SNP's stunning resurgence further down the line. Here's the historian Ben Jackson again. A sort of sense developed in Scotland in the 80s and 90s that, that associated those economic changes, the rising unemployment and poverty and so on, with the actions of the government from Westminster that hadn't been elected by the Scottish people. And so that did create quite a nationalist dynamic in Scottish politics. What is also happening at the same time is the Scottish Labour Party is also embracing some of this nationalist way of framing political issues so I think the Scottish Labour Party is quite skillful in the 80s and 90s at preventing the SNP getting any purchase with these arguments because they say we are in fact the ones that are standing up for Scottish interests and we propose devolution as a way of 
advancing Scottish interests. The success of that Scottish Labour argument stops the SNP for a while, but I think we can also see in retrospect that the Scottish Labour embrace of that rhetoric was a double-edged sword because when you get to the later period, it, it turns out that that argument about the lack of mandate that a government in London might have to rule Scotland you know, is potentially taking you quite far towards an argument for Scottish independence. <laughs> in 1997, pressured by leading Scottish Labour figures, an uncertain Tony Blair pressed ahead with what was ultimately another long-term boost to the nationalist cause, the creation of the Scottish Parliament. This had long been resisted by the Tory governments of the 1980s and early 1990s. I'm not convinced by the present devolution model currently before Parliament. Surely the last thing that Scotland needs or the Scottish people want is another layer of government, another swathe of bureaucracy to support when you have so many already. But leading Scottish Labour figures were convinced it had to happen. Famously, Shadow Scottish Secretary George Robertson pronounced in 1995 that devolution would, and I quote, kill nationalism stone dead. As prophecies go, it would prove to be one of the worst in modern political history. That was a completely wrong reading of how things would work out. The Daily Record's Torquil Crichton. When the Scottish Parliament came along, it gave the SNP a platform for sure. They got 35 MSPs in that first 1999 election, Nicola Sturgeon among them. So she was in from the beginning and they were led by Alex Sam at that stage. And when it came to operating in the Scottish Parliament, the SNP were much better at saying that they could stand up for Scotland. Here's the SNP's Mike Russell. I think it made the SNP into a parliamentary party overnight. I mean, the SNP was an extra parliamentary party until 1999. And then overnight, it had more parliamentarians elected in its entire history. So it gave the party experience and then it gave the party experience of government. So perhaps it was preparing Scotland for independence in that sense. And here's the former SNP First Minister, Alex Salmond. It was always going to help. That was just a, a disagreement I had with uh, George Robertson, one where I won and he lost uh, but they also had an electoral system which was designed to keep the SNP out of power. And, of course, we burst through that in 2011. So first to establish the SNP from opposition to government, which was what we did in 2007, then to demonstrate the SNP could demonstrate competence to government, it was highly important in the victory of 2011. Salmond had first become leader in 1990 and insists now that it was his work in that pre-devolution period, transforming the SNP into a modern left-of-centre social democratic party that laid the groundwork for their later success. Well, I mean, he would say that, wouldn't he? I would say the 1990s were the, the decade where the, the SNP became relevant. Uh, and basically the fundamental decision that the SNP made under my first term of leadership, for the first 10 years, was to start uh, assuming a place in the social and economic spectrum. You know, in other words, instead of just saying, look... Uh, we're on the side of Scotland, but be prepared to take sides within Scotland. And now, of course, that challenge resulted in the advent of a devolved parliament. That was the SNP's challenge to Labour, which made the policy necessary to defend Labour's interests. And once you get into the parliament, of course, you get into a totally different situation. The SNP became the opposition in 1999, and oppositions, by and large in politics, have a habit of becoming governments. And so it came to pass with the Labour government in Westminster increasingly unpopular in Scotland in the aftermath of the Iraq War, and with the Tories still widely disliked following the scars of the Thatcher years, voters began to turn in a different direction. Here's the Daily Record's talk, Will Crichton. I think, you know, Blairism, that centre-ground 
Blairism, where you saw the Libs, Tories and, and Labour kind of get onto this kind of very narrow patch of middle ground territory to try and maximise the vote beyond your own party, that allowed the SNP in Scotland at least to be seen as, as left of Labour. That crystallised, I would say, around the, the war, the Iraq war, which confounded Blair's unpopularity and led to that, I think, that surge that led the SNP into government in 2007. The SNP, who'd won barely half the number of seats Labour had in the 2003 Scottish Parliament elections, overtook them in 2007 by a single crucial seat. On such fine margins are the fates of nations decided. Salmond became the first minister of a minority government and the SNP at last had the electoral breakthrough they were looking for. I spoke to his defeated opponent, Jack McConnell, who'd been Labour's first minister since 2001, about the forces which propelled the SNP to power. For me, the major reason for that was a disengagement between the UK level of government and the people of Scotland, ministers, officials. I kind of understand why it happened. I think a lot of ministries in Whitehall were nervous about engaging with Scotland after devolution. It's a gradual psychology then develops that this level of government here in the UK is not as relevant to us anymore. You know, there are lots of other reasons for the election results. Personalities, issues of the time, and so on. Um, personalities like Alex Salmond. And personalities it- like Alex Salmond. I mean, you know, lavish promises that made a big difference in election campaigns. That were never, but, 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 you know, that happens. You know, I get that. That's fine. And issues like the Iraq War, presumably. The Iraq War. In 2006, 2007, Alex ran a very, very, you know, professional campaign, but he was also quite lucky. Charles Kennedy had resigned as leader of the Liberal Democrats. Charles Kennedy, until then, had been the most public opponent of the war. And just as the situation in Iraq got significantly worse, Charles resigned and Alec became the most significant Westminster opponent of the war. Um, Gave him a big, big platform. Very quickly, in the course of about 12 months, they moved up in the polls. And independence moved up in the polls. There was a poll in November 2006 where independence was ahead of remaining in the UK. And was that a jaw-dropping moment for you personally to see that? Well, it was a worrying moment. <laughs> I was going to say something even more dramatic there. It was a worrying moment. Um, uh, uh, and you know, there was certainly a bit, of, uh, a, bit of, a bit of panic in the government here in, in the UK as well. Once the SNP did get into power in Scotland in 2007, and then obviously a full majority in 2011, yep. they were able to use that platform in a way that you know they could never have dreamed of in the 60s and 70s, right? Yes, yeah, so the platform helped. The relative weakness of the opposition helped, but they've used the position very skillfully, both as a platform for political debate, but also in creating Brand Scotland. You know, the centralisation of public services at a Scottish level has meant there's many more references in Scottish public life and day-to-day life now to Scotland rather than your local community, which hasn't necessarily produced better services, but has affected, again, the national psychology. So they've been very skillful in the way that they have used the power of government. And it's maybe allowed them to show themselves to be a professional, competent outfit in a way it's very hard to do when you're a minor party out of power. Yes, even those that were voting for them by 2007 were a little bit worried about what it would be like. And by running a relatively moderate, stable government for the first few years, that consolidated the position very cleverly. Others say McConnell's operation itself must carry some of the blame for Labour's defeat. Here's Dr Ben Jackson. There probably was an opportunity for Scottish Labour to carve out a distinctive space for itself 
after 1999 when the parliament gets going, but it tended to stick to, at least rhetorically, it stuck to a fairly new Labour kind of line. And so they didn't really develop a clear political identity for themselves and left a lot of space open for the SNP. And that was... I think something that in retrospect was a was a mistake that allowed the SNP to then start making the case that we need something that's a bit stronger, that's kicking off against what's happening in, in London. I asked Labour's former First Minister, Jack McConnell, if he had any regrets. Oh, that's a question I've asked myself, over, you can imagine, over and over and over again. Um, you know, if I had spoken out more at the time you know, been seen to stand up more aggressively for Scotland against London, uh, which some people wanted me to do, would that have helped? Would it have been honest? Would it have been me? You know, I, I believe in trying to find solutions rather than just score points. So that was me. You know, I'm comfortable in my own skin. And McConnell refuted any suggestion that, as a unionist, pushing ahead with the whole devolution project had proved to be a terrible mistake. Well, that's like saying the fact that we have a Westminster Parliament encourages the election of Boris Johnson and then allows him and his Brexit mates to create all this division with the European Union and all these problems in Northern Ireland and so on and so forth. And therefore we should abolish the Westminster Parliament. It's just, it's the most nonsense argument. But you do find in these devolved parliaments that to be a successful politician, you seem to have to define yourself against the Westminster government. And so by creating that devolved administration, you create a driver, a whole class of politicians who feel that they need to say those things. But democracy is a fundamental principle and having democracy for Scotland and putting that legal system and the education system and all the other institutions of Scotland under proper democratic control rather than being governed by a parliament in which Scottish MPs did not have the right to make make those laws is a fundamental principle and people who are not nationalists they need to find a way of adapting to that and challenging it. If we don't win elections in the meantime, that's not a reason to, to cut back on democracy. It's a reason to be better at it. What's certain is that there's only been one party winning elections in Scotland since 2007. Since gaining its foothold, the SNP has gone from strength to strength, while Scottish Labour simply collapsed in defeat. Here's the Daily Record's Torquil Crichton. Labour was suffering in Scotland, ahead of what is suffering now in the UK as all Western social democratic parties are suffering from Greece, Spain, France, everywhere, is they're seeing their vote disintegrate and break away into alternative parties, where in England you didn't really have a choice other than the Conservative or Labour. In Scotland you had this this third choice, this third anti-politics choice. And the SNP, successfully, even when in government, always present themselves as the insurgents against the establishment, against Westminster, and then big factors, big, big factors like the, the economic crash, the crash of 2008, which cracked, fractured that trust between voters and politicians and the triangulation and capitalism, if you want, if you want to read it that way. And I think that led to an increasing cynicism of, of all Western politics, which the SNP have capitalised on. Even so, few had predicted that in 2011... Salmond might deliver a result that no party was meant to be able to achieve under the Scottish Parliament's complex voting rules, an outright SNP majority in Holyrood. This is the stuff of fantasies for the nationalists, their leader returning to Edinburgh to lay claim to an historic victory. I'll govern for all of the ambitions of Scotland and all the people who imagine that we can live 
in a better land. This party... And what we stood on in 2011 was record. That's the record we'd established. The bridge over the fourth, a bypass around Aberdeen, a railway to the borders, free education, free tuition. So that was a big record to go on in 2011, one that was very, very successful, and we managed to break the system. But we, we didn't do it just by reciting both votes SNP. Instead, we gave people a reason for the second vote, which was to have Alex Salmond as First Minister, and that was very successful in 2011. And then, of course, that led to the referendum. Once again, success bred success. And for Leslie Riddick and others like her, this was the moment to become a vocal supporter of the nationalist cause. I think for a lot of people, it was just that it seemed like it would be a good idea all the time, but one that would never happen. When Alex Salmond and the SNP won by one seat in 2007 against all predictions, suddenly there was a bit of a rumble in the jungle. But given the nature of that minority government, that still wasn't even a light didn't switch on then. And uh, the SNP, who, who many people derided as, again, like embarrassing cousins that you never knew how they were going to behave, those guys had to prove they could actually govern a country. So really, it wasn't on their horizon and they didn't talk about it much either. So really, it was, again, the surprise of 2011 when they won an election they shouldn't have been able to win outright, given that the parliament was set up not to produce one overall majorities. It was the day after that when the penny dropped and Alex Salmond started talking about independence that people suddenly realised it was game on and it was possible. The story of what's happened in Scotland since the defeated 2014 referendum hardly needs retelling here. The triumphant unionists split back along their traditional party lines and an angry and united SNP, now under the slick new leadership of Nicola Sturgeon, won almost every seat in Scotland in the 2015 general election. Then came the 2016 Brexit vote, giving Sturgeon the perfect opportunity to demand a second independence poll. The Scottish Parliament should have the right to hold another referendum if there is a significant and material change in the circumstances that prevailed in 2014, such as Scotland being taken out of the EU against our will. Scotland does now face that prospect the chaotic government we've seen in Westminster since the EU referendum has only helped her cause. And Boris Johnson's disastrous mishandling of the coronavirus pandemic last year, in fact, let's face it, Boris Johnson's very existence, has pushed support for independence to around, or perhaps beyond, 50%. At times it's felt like every turn of events since 2014 has simply played into the SNP's hands. Although obviously, if you listen to Alex Salmond, the Scottish people were always going to move in this direction. Buyer's regret, isn't it? Uh, when people thought what might have been. Uh, and remember the circumstances. The SOP became hugely politically successful, a political machine that you know swept all before it. But we didn't move the dial on independence. Uh, I mean, independence remained at about 30% support in Scotland right up to the summer of 2014. The dial started to move when I realised, and that was my fault, I didn't realise earlier, it was my mistake, the independence to be most successful, as opposed to the SNP as a political party being successful, the independence had to be argued across the range and spectrum. And that was the multifarious, wonderful grassroots upsurge of all sorts of organisations arguing for independence, but a whole variety of points of view. That's what moved the dial. Added to that since, you've had Brexit and you've had the performance of Nicola Sturgeon as a communicator through the pandemic, which is infinitely superior. To, I mean, even though the policies are roughly aligned, 
the communication of them has been infinitely superior by Nicola Sturgeon compared to Boris Johnson. All of these things give you the current 50-50 situation or slight independence majority, however you want to define it. Salmond himself, of course, now cuts a deeply divisive figure. Shocking allegations have been made about his personal conduct, all of which he denies, and he was cleared of 13 charges of sexual assault last year. But his dramatic split with Sturgeon and the SNP will surely never be resolved. His fledgling new party, ALBA, hopes to take regional votes from the SNP at next week's election, creating what he calls a supermajority for independence at Holyrood. But for all the present acrimony, there can be no doubting the central role which he and a handful of SNP veterans played in getting the independence cause to where it is today. Here's Torquil Crichton. Yeah, uh, skill and total commitment from these politicians with a vision, a unity and discipline around a vision and a psychological switch within themselves and then within the party and then within the country to present independence and nationalism not as a negative anti-English move, but as a positive kind of civic move. Now, that's been a large part of the success. And also just the, the sheer skill, audacity and, and chutzpah of uh, one Alex Salmond, who took them from the edge to the middle to government and, and almost beyond and also, I think that kind of duality, you know, Sturgeon arriving in 2014, fully formed as a leader. You know, people say she's a brilliant politician. I always say, if I'd been an apprentice for 10 years, I could build you a house too. She was by his side through each step of the way, listening, watching, learning and, and shaping shaping herself as, as, as a great politician she is. And I think it's interesting that just kind of invention, that kind of feminised reinvention of when silverback, male, old nationalism, you know, is found to be unappealing. How does populism reinvent itself? Well, it reinvents itself as young, optimistic, female nationalism. We've seen that in Scotland. Last question for me. Do you see any trends now which suggest that this path that nationalism has been on for the last 20 years that you've been covering politics is in some way changing course? Or do you just see it still only going in one direction? No, there's been a huge structural change. The earthquake of 2014, that 55-45 split in Scotland... That's a structural change that is there for a long time to come. There's no sign of of people who voted yes to independence of changing their minds very much or much traffic either way. Everything that happens in Scotland is seen through the prism of independence from education, transport, and nothing moves on in a decade as a result of it. And as I said, the whole idea of independence of the 2014 referendum was to separate Scotland from the United Kingdom. But what it's achieved is to divide Scots from themselves. So you have a 50-50 split on almost every issue under the sun and no sign of that being resolved either one way or t'other for the time to come. So nearly seven years on from the 2014 referendum, Scotland remains either on the brink of a glorious future or trapped in a state of perpetual division, depending on who you listen to. The history books show that the SNP have been lucky generals, for sure, benefiting from a raft of powerful forces over the past 30 years, both within Scotland and beyond. But they've been highly skilled ones too, winning over millions of Scots with smart, positive, attractive arguments and batting away their lumbering opponents with ease. And what's certain is that next week's Hollywood elections will write yet another chapter in the extraordinary success story of the modern Scottish nationalist movement, whether it can maintain its current momentum through this new decade and beyond remains to be seen. But it's clear the story is far from told. 
Thanks for listening to this first episode of Season 2 of Westminster Insider. If you enjoyed it, then please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And why not leave us a rating and a review as you do? My producer was Ellie Clifford at Whistledown Productions. And special thanks too this week to Politico's Andrew MacDonald for assisting with research and interviews. And especially for doorstepping Alex Salmond at an Edinburgh gym earlier this week. My executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my managing editor is James Randerson. I'll be back next week with episode two. I'll see you then.